Romans chapter 13 in your Bibles this morning. Thank you, ladies, very, very much. It's a tremendous uh, spiritual reminder even headed into our, our text this morning in God's Word. If you're here this morning and maybe you uh, don't have uh, a copy of God's Word on your electronic device or maybe you forgot your Bible some, for some reason in your car or at home, our ushers would like to give you a copy of God's Word to follow along with this morning. That's what we do for the rest of our time here is focus on God's written word. So if you just lift up your hand, our ushers will be glad to uh, find you and give you a Bible to follow along. It looks like everybody's got a copy here this morning. But certainly that uh, is a delightful reminder of our texts this morning, redeemed, uh, how I love to proclaim it. And as we've been discussing in this particular portion of the book of Romans in the 13th chapter, the best way to proclaim that you're redeemed is by the way you live. Is by the way you live. We've discussed earlier in the book of Romans how we proclaim the gospel verbally. And now we've been discussing how we proclaim the gospel by by our character our moral, ethical character. There is a change that Jesus Christ brings in our life when we come to know him. And that change is transformational. It changes us from living under the authority of darkness and translates us into living under the authority of the light of Jesus Christ. And, And the world around us should notice that. Uh, If we're proud to redeem, uh, to to speak of our Redeemer, we'll do so not just by what we say, but how we live, because quite frankly, most people are going to know our gospel more by how we live than by what we say. Now I know the Bible says, as we've already studied in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, we have to remember too, in that portion of the book of Romans that we've already studied together this year, that hearing of the word of God primarily does not come from a Sunday morning pulpit. Because even in the context of Romans 10, the hearing of the word of God comes from you as we live disciple-making lives in our community. And so certainly by, if you couple Romans 13 with that particular part of Romans 10, if you want to go back and study that on your own, by people watching you live a transformed life and noticeably seeing the difference that God's saving grace has made in the way you live, and as you befriend them, truly and genuinely befriend them and love them and pray for them, as they walk with you through the natural rhythms of life, I guarantee you it will come up as a topic in your conversation with them, the difference in which you live your life. Not just the character, but the disposition, if you will. The joyful disposition in which you live your life will become uh, evident and noticeable to those you're befriending in this world who are yet to know Jesus Christ personally. So, thank you for that song, ladies. It, uh, we are proud, if you will, to, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we love to proclaim him. 
Uh, and this morning, we continue to discuss how we do so just simply by the way we live. I'm going to review real quickly last week's whole outline of Romans chapter 11, chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Um, let's reread these verses together, and then we'll highlight the structure, and then we'll uh, zero in on where we picked up last week, and we're going to uh, left off last week where we'll pick up this morning. Paul says in verse 11, do this, and we reminded last week that's really in direct reference to verses 8 to 10, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing, a contemporary word for that would be partying, not in partying and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So last week in the first, verse 11 and the first part of verse 12, we talked about living with a, a renewed perspective. And you can go back and, and study that on your own again by going online and watching the video from last week's sermon uh, or just listening. But we discussed a renewed perspective. The second part of verse 12 and verse 13 this morning, I'd like to uh, preach to you or discuss with you a refined direction. A believer lives with a refined direction in this culture as outlined here in this uh, particular section of this text. And then in verse 14, we'll conclude with a relentless appropriation. A reminder that we need to relentlessly appropriate Jesus Christ to our lives and, and we'll discuss that in detail when we get there. But the second part of verse 12 and 13, what is this refined direction? The text says, therefore, in other words, understanding what's just been discussed in relationship to this renewal in verse 11, in the first part of verse 12, understanding that, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, and then we'll in detail discuss what that proper behavior looks like as children of light in this culture that's saturated with various kinds of darkness. Okay. Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. It's common in the way Paul writes in the New Testament, that he's going to ask us to, when we live counterculturally, to stop doing something or to continue not doing something, and then to start doing something. So this language in the Bible is probably pretty familiar for those of you that have been reading the Bible for a long time as being Pauline. Peter uses a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, but Paul is primarily known as the guy who uses put off, put on language. And he's going to do it here in a, 
a number of different ways in the rest of our sermon this morning, but he says here, as children of the day, children that know the day star Jesus Christ, those who live in newness of light, he says here, we're going to lay aside and then put on something. We're going to put on the armor of light. And if you believe in writing in your Bibles, you can cross-reference there Ephesians 6 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Those are two other contexts in which Paul discusses what spiritual armor is. He takes what's discussed in 1 Thessalonians 5 in partial detail and in Ephesians 6 in full detail, and he summarizes the detail of both of those passages with one simple explanation of those passages here, and he calls it all armor of light. You'll remember, right, the helmet of salvation, right, and the breastplate of righteousness, okay? Um, basically what he's saying from Ephesians 6 and 1 Thessalonians 5 that we have... Uh, an obligation once we've heard the gospel to intellectually understand it and then volitionally submit ourselves to it. That's why it's called the helmet of salvation. You've got to protect your head, right? You've got to protect your head with the right information. To intellectually know the gospel is necessary, salvation through Jesus Christ alone, but then volitionally we really can't be born again until we submit our wills to the Lord Jesus Christ and make him Lord of our life. And then what are we able to do? We're able to protect our hearts. Right? We're able to protect our hearts. We're, we're able to put on the breastplate. Right? And we're able to walk in newness of life as our hearts are complete, regularly renewed by the information that God's word gives to us. The armor of light here within the context, as we've already explained, is demonstrated in our character. It's demonstrated in our character. The gospel's changed us. We submitted our will to it. Our hearts now are growing in newness of life. And in a more clear and progressive understanding of the word of God. And as that happens, the way we live changes. The way we live changes. He says, as a result, we'll be able to uh, behave properly. Behave properly as in the day. That's the first part of verse 13. The people who originally would have heard this letter read to them would have understood it this way. Walk carefully and in a restrained manner as if Jesus was already here. Walk carefully and in a restrained manner as if Jesus was already here, had already arrived. The word properly here just means honorably or decently or something that's spiritually attractive, something that's brought on the scene to the world that's new, it's different, it's radically different. Uh, if the Lord Jesus Christ was to return today, there would be a radical difference in the world. Right? The second time he comes to earth, he's going to bring about a radical difference, isn't he? The next time we see him, it's going to be in the clouds. That could be today when the church is taken. 
But the next time he puts his feet on the earth, Jesus can't go anywhere without radically changing something or someone. Would you agree? So he was born the first time as a babe. He was born to die. He would radically offer the world eternal life, salvation, right, through his perfect life and his perfect death, once for all death for our sins. And we come to him, he radically changes us. So that first advent was necessary, wasn't it? That next appearing in the clouds is going to change the world because the world's going to have to get used to living without the church, without the presence of the redeemed among her. But when Jesus comes seven years later after that and his feet touch the ground, things radically change, don't they? For a thousand years. When Jesus enters the environment of any particular culture, specifically here, any particular life, he radically changes that life for the better. And we're asked here to live as if he's already come. As if he's already come. This culture in which Paul writes to the church of Rome would have understood this language very, very clearly. For millennia of time, both in secular and sacred writings, people were used to defining that which was sinful as darkness and that which was righteous as light. You can go back if you've taught literature in your school or you were taught literature. Um, Again, literature that was sacred, the Bible, or secular. Non-biblical literature. There's often allusions to light and darkness, and darkness defined that which is evil, and light defined that which stood for good. So this was not uncommon in Hellenic language, It was certainly not uncommon to the Jewish heart and mind that was familiar with the Old Testament of light and darkness comparisons. So whether Gentile or whether Jew, everyone would have understood that when you accept Christ, who is the day star, he transforms your heart and you live for that which is light or righteous. And you are no longer living in the culture of night. The culture of night. And he defines very explicitly here what the night culture is. Now, we don't find anything in these 16 chapters that, I, that tells us that the, the congregation at Rome was living this way. So why does he explicitly detail what's here? I don't really believe there's anyone in this auditorium that's giving a pledge of allegiance to the dark detail that Paul's going to mention here. So why is it good for us to be reminded about what children of the night do? Well, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to that church that was also healthy. The more they strengthened each other in the word, the more their, their character resembled the character of their creator 
And they were able to strengthen each other that way. But he goes on from the end of chapter 3 to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he says you ought to continually increase in what it means to walk and to please God. Chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. And then he goes on into chapter 4 and verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. And he says this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. So to a healthy church in Thessalonica and now to a healthy church in Rome, it's, it's wise for all of us, and what I'm assuming is a healthy church and mentor, to review this detail because we still have within us an old sin nature that's tempted to darkness. And it's good to be reminded, right, so that we can obey the last line of verse 14 more clearly as we head there in just a few moments. It's good for us to be reminded what we used to be and what we are to uh, live our lives carefully <laughs> by putting on this armor of light and, wa light and walking properly to, to, to walk properly away from these things because it's easy for these things to creep back into our lives because we still have an old sin nature within us. What does he say here? I'm going to take these three couplets, if you will, these three items of two, and give them a general definition. I'm going to make it an active uh, role for us, because this is actively, right, putting on the armor of life. Uh, the first couplet, not in partying or drunkenness, I'm going to call that be self-controlled, continue to be self-controlled. Not in sexual promiscuity or in sensuality. I'm going to call that be pure. Be pure. And then the third, not in strife, which literally means dissension, and jealousy. Right? Be discerning. Be discerning. Be self-controlled. Be pure. And be discerning. Not in partying, and drunkenness. If you've had a wise parent or maybe a wise teacher or a wise coach and they desired to protect you as a youth from the world of darkness, they will tell you really nothing good happens in this world after midnight. Stay off the streets, right? stay away from the parties. Um, my parents had a curfew for us. I didn't know if you knew this or not, but if you're under 18 in the city of Mentor, uh, you can be pulled over by a policeman if they assume that you're under 18. One of my children has been. It was 11.30 at night and they got pulled over. They had broken no traffic violation. Right. Scared to death. All right, what did I do? And he said, did you know that there's a curfew in the city of Menor? And he said, no, I didn't. Uh, he goes, you're not allowed to be out right now. You need to get home. Uh, nothing good happens at night. And so we appreciate that, even from a law enforcement officer, right? This first couplet, these first two specific sins mentioned here are typically vices or sins of the night. 
that which happens later. And, and we know that we live in a world that, right, that when the work day's done, right, when the work day's done, we're looking for environments, opportunities that uh, can bring about in us a little less self-control. And if we can, by a little alcohol, if we can, uh, by a little environment change, you know, let down our guard, let down our hair, let down our self-control that, you know what, we deserve that because we've worked so hard and, 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 and we do this 60 to 80 hours a week and, and, and we deserve this time to just let go a little bit and to party, to get drunk. Apostle Paul's saying here, anything that happens in the night is not spiritually productive. Right? It's just not spiritually productive. Right? Some of you, before you came to know Christ as your Savior, lived in the night. Right? There's plenty of pop songs in our culture and have been plenty of pop songs in our culture for years that many of us know the lyrics to those songs and they, and they celebrate what happens in the night, right? Go ahead and lose control, it's okay, right? As long as I can have a beer, my pickup truck and my girl, everything's good, right? Just let go, just let go, just let go. You deserve it. And Paul's saying here that when we put on the armor of light, we always want to stay aware. We always want to stay aware that as we live light in this culture, that we ought to be a representative of light which does not let go. It's a countercultural lifestyle. You are a child of the day. We're a child of the day, and so just kind of remember that as we move forward here this morning, that anything, anything, regardless of its measure, amount, that alters your mind's ability to control itself, a believer is to walk away from. That's what Paul's saying here. Put on the armor of light. Be discerning. You're children of the day. Don't lose your, your self-control. Anything that compels you to, even in the smallest measure, lose control. Don't even begin to start full loss of self-control with even a partial loss of self-control. Stay away. Okay? Stay away. It would be unusual for you. Uh, I've been to Annapolis one time. And when we were driving on, at least where we drove on the campus to watch our son play basketball against Navy, we were stopped at a front gate. Right? I'm assuming those were military police. It would be highly alarming to you, wouldn't you, if you saw a 24 case of Bud Light right, sitting outside the guard shack, and it would be alarming to you if you pulled up and that MP was drinking a cold one, why would that be alarming to you? 
Because even one cold one would alter what? Science tells us that. We would say it's foolish. He's, got, he's given the responsibility of protecting the gate. Why would, why would his superior allow any alteration in his ability to discern, protect, or be self-controlled, right? Put on the armor of God. What do soldiers do? They just, they just live counterculturally, completely counterculturally, to the point where it's evidently noticeable by those people who are yet to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's evidently noticeable. Be self-controlled. Be pure. I, I personally believe there's kind of a flow to the grammar here, even in the listing of these, this detail. Uh, you can talk to me later about whether you see that flow or not, but I think there's an intentionality here. If we, if we lose self-control, what's that going to lead to? I was reading an article that one of my sons uh, pointed out to me this week that said that the number of diseases that have been contracted by American college students is now exponentially at an all-time high. Diseases contracted from being and living sexually immoral lifestyles. You don't have to go far away from a public college campus to pretty much see the, the dark reality of what a drunken culture looks like and what it does. If you live as a Christian in that culture and you live putting on your armor of light, you're going to stick out a little bit. You're going to be alone a lot. But your heart grows in compassion for those who are around you. Why? Because they're constantly doing things that they've been taught that they deserve to lose a little self-control and, and then to gratify their appetites without restraint and then even incur to themselves diseases they'll have for the rest of their lives that they can be uh, given medication to help stay the effects of it, but they continue to live that way, not just only in the night anymore, but, but during the day too. Right? And then the rest of their lives can be affected by those decisions they make. And so what do we do? We made those decisions in high school, college, maybe in junior high, and now even elementary school, and we just might as well just keep living that way. Even though we say I do to somebody, and we commit our lives to them, they really, really don't have supernatural grace in their hearts to be able to live countercultural to that, even after they say, I do. And so now in Mentor, 70% of first marriages are ending in divorce, and 85% of second marriages, and 100% of third marriages in our city end in divorce. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm just saying, darkness is always planned out for anyone, a slippery slope to the ruination of a life and the ruination of a family. And Paul's saying here, 
You've been saved out of that darkness. Now you're living in light. You've been established in the light of Jesus Christ. But be, remembered, be, be reminded from time to time that it's okay right? to know what you used to be so that you can continue being light in our culture. So... Stay away from any type of sexual activity outside the context of biblical marriage. and Stay away from any of the sensuality, right, which is basically an overly sexualized culture. Stay away from anything that would lead you to or tempt you to an immoral lifestyle. And you'll be living as light, which is contrary to darkness. Okay. And typically what happens when someone lives a, a life that doesn't have self-control and, and, and lives in promiscuity or sexual immorality and, and sensuality, well, they're going to end up having a life that's full of strife and a life full of jealousy. Right. I think adults have different ways of doing that than kids do, but, you know, having had four teenagers come through my house now in teenage culture. Kids that lose self-control that involve themselves in immorality with multiple partners before they graduate from high school, there's a little dissension among that group. There's a little jealousy, a little argumentation, a little fighting. And Paul's saying here, don't even get on that road. Praise God you've stayed off of it. A little reminder here not to get on it. And remember, you're able to live as children of light, not by your own power. These are not just rules and items in a series of pragmatic things that Paul says we're to religiously obey. He's saying, in Jesus Christ, this is who you are. So continue to be, in Jesus Christ, who you are. Okay? And then he says here, if you don't quite totally understand just yet, if you don't quite understand just yet, look at verse 14. And let's close with a relentless appropriation. A relentless appropriation. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. As we wrap up here this morning, Paul's reiterating what he's already stated only in a different way for emphasis. He says put on, put off and then put on the armor of light. But he's saying if you don't understand that metaphor, then he said put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regardless to its lust. And that final phrase we'll discuss is even a finer explanation of the more broad explanation of put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a finer explanation than the formerly more broad explanation of put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the language here is, is um, it's an imperative. It's a command. That's why I, I, I define this particular point with a relentless appropriation. This is something that God's grace uh, compels us to do, 
compels us to do. Uh, in other words, his grace relieves us no choice but to do this. Put it on. I, uh, I was one of those kids that got strep throat like all the time. And back then, I don't know that they really understood what chronically gave kids strep throat. Uh, typically, what that meant for us is every time I got strep throat, I went to old doctor, can't remember his name. I didn't like him. Um, <laughs> I went to Dr. So-and-so. I could tell you where his office was, and my heart still starts to race fast whenever I drive by. And he's been gone a long time, like dead gone. Like He's not been around a long time. So his practice isn't even there, but... Um, every time I went to that office, I knew what was going to happen. Back then, there was no oral penicillin. At least if there was, they abused me and I didn't get any. <laughs> right? I knew that I went there, the big shot was coming. And this was a big shot. Right? And I was a bigger kid. And, and I could remember that they had to call in several nurses. Uh, <laughs> along with my mom, and in time, my mom couldn't, so my dad came to hold me down because this shot hurt. Does anyone remember that abuse? So you got those shots. Did they hurt you or was I just a wimp? Those suckers hurt. Bad. Like, and they always gave it in the same spot. Right? Well, it's the biggest muscle of your body, so it shouldn't hurt for long. Whatever, right? It's nuts. It hurt for days. It hurt for days. Anyways, I digress too much. So probably because I'm still bitter. I need to go. But boy, I tell you what, that thing would work quickly, right? It would work quickly. I remember my grandparents, my grandma and grandpa Hartline were visiting one particular time. And uh, I had gotten the shot. I was at home the next day from school, rapidly recovering. And uh, I was up in my pajamas, having not showered for a couple days. And my grandpa had gone up to McDonald's, and he knew that I really loved quarter pounder with cheese meals. And I can remember hearing his voice from the bottom of the steps saying, hey, he called me Timmer. He said, Timmer, I got your quarter pounder with cheese. Hurry up and get down here. Man, my feet hit the floor. I went through my head underneath the sink in the bathroom. I quickly put on some clean clothes and I darted down the stairs uh, to have my quarter pounder with cheese. That's the idea here of, of this relentlessness, right? We've been made well in this culture of wellness because of Jesus Christ. We're compelled with excitement to go partake in this culture of light. And there's an energy behind this that we didn't have before. And it's a godlike energy to continue to live in that light. And he says here, put on Jesus himself. You say, well, I already did that the moment I got saved. You did. But this is what he's saying. Put him on like you would a garment of clothing. And there's lots of different ways that commentators explain how we put on Jesus Christ. One said, we who are in Christ must envelop ourselves with him in such a way that he directs all of our thinking and conduct. In other words, you begin to learn the rest of your life 
you know, the old silly bracelets, what would Jesus do? I hate to be irreverent, but it's just a bracelet, and a lot of people don't get that, that wear them. But basically what he's saying is, before you think, how would Jesus think? Before you act, what would Jesus do? Or how would he act in this, in this particular moment? Be adorned with who he is. Any wife enjoys a compliment from her husband when she puts on a new outfit for the first time. She may even enjoy others noticing as well. You men may be around your buddies for a big game or the night of your NFL fantasy draft, and you might have gotten online and purchased a new hat or a team jersey to wear to watch the game or be part of the draft. And hey, it's all cool, right? When someone walks in and says, hey, that's a really cool jersey. That looks authentic. That looks like a game day jersey. Where'd you get that? How much did you pay? I can remember for three of my kids and probably for fourth in the near future, buying them all varsity jackets from their high school here in Mentor, Mentor High School, and giving those to them at Christmas time and, and, and having their names embroidered, right, at a noticeable spot on the front of that coat And so when they put that jacket on, right, and down their back, down their arm and down their back, their accomplishments can be seen and and they can put that varsity coat on and be recognized for those accomplishments. In either one of these scenarios, the outfit, the jersey, or the jacket stands out as something new and fresh. Let's take it a little farther and understand Uh, Maybe more appropriately, what Paul's saying here when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How special is it to to find the wedding dress your mom or grandmother or great-grandmother wore? And maybe even seek to try it on. How exciting it would be to find your dad's varsity jacket or your grandfather's varsity jacket and put it on and be able to wear their accomplishments proudly. If I would have ever found my dad's varsity jacket, because I was reared and nurtured in a loving environment, I would be proud to put that Berkshire High School Badger purple and gold jacket on, right? And then all of a sudden, it would look like his accomplishments were what? Were mine. Trying out a wedding dress of a mother or grandmother or great-grandmother you dearly respected and loved would be a joyful thing where you're, where you're almost putting on a wholesome memory of her life and who she was. When we excitedly put on Jesus Christ, we do so because we are proud of him and what he's done for us. The spiritual clothing is brand new, and it stays that way. It's noticeable in this old world, isn't it? Putting these spiritual clothes on, though, may be misunderstood by a lot of people. But my goodness, we're proud. We're proud. We're redeemed and love to proclaim it. His child and forever we are. And my goodness, we live that way in this culture that is really dying to see that difference in somebody. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
where his death for you. He died for sin that you could die to sin. Put him on. Put him on. Proudly wear his accomplishments. And if you really don't understand that metaphor yet, this is what he finishes with. The slam dunk for someone who puts on the armor of light is to stay away from carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, and jealousy. Put on Christ. And if you don't get it there just yet, this is what he says. Don't even get close to the temptation of sinning in those ways. If you really want to be exact, right? There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. I get that. But you know your old sin nature. You know what you used to be. It's been outlined here in partial detail. And Paul's saying here, if you're walking as children that are putting on the armor of light and and you're staying away from these things and you're putting on Jesus Christ, then you're going to not only not be involved in those activities, you're going to stay away from even the temptation that leads to being involved in those activities. Just be careful. Being aware. Right? And I think this would be a real neat little place at the end of verse 14 to 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober. It's a military term. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around seeking whom he may what? Devour. He just does. He just does. So a spirit-filled, word-saturated person who's putting on the armor of light will certainly like the church of Rome was, stay away from those activities and they'll even desire to stay away from the temptation that leads to those activities. Increasingly so. No one in this room, including your pastor, bats a thousand on all those things. But in general, our lives ought to be defined as people who wear the armor of light. I'm going to give you a basic life application of this as we close. And this may not make sense to everybody, but hopefully it'll make sense to part of us this morning. The kids who were, came to know Christ as their savior when they were very young, like I did, those kids who are second and third generation believers have a harder time obeying this passage than those who are saved later in life. If I talk about staying away from this temptation or that temptation, or I talk about staying away from any one of these six sins we've highlighted in broad three, three, broad three ways, three broad ways, I'm primarily discussing that detail with kids who have been saved for a long time. I rarely have this discussion with a newer believer or a first-generation believer. I think there's all kinds of reasons for that. One of the reasons is because when we got saved at younger ages, we were you know, born again, five, six, seven, eight years old, and, and we knew that we needed to be born again, but we were, we, were, we were born again into an environment that kept us safe in a lot of different ways 
by us just obeying what we were told and we were willing to do that but as we got older we realized that we still had the temptations to do these things and we did not know that God's grace was merely capable enough to help us obey the rules and along the way, we didn't have any real sincere, deep relationships to walk through life with us to, to help us understand why this temptation was still in there and, and help us understand how to overcome it and walk through it or even get up from it after we fell in failure. So we lived in abject fear of even admitting that we might have failed because we should have been along for the ride happily anyway by just obeying. I think some of us grew up in, 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 in places, I think unwittingly by our folks who reared us uh, in rules-based relationships rather than relationship-based relationships. And rules without relationship always equals rebellion. Right. And I think that's why there's a lot of failure even in my own age, those who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who were reared as second or third generation Christians. And I think there's why there's a lot of revisiting the lifestyle that's not beginning with self-control. And then a few years later, then we'll be counseling the people who started to play with fire again. And then we're just one generation away from not only a lost generation, but a generation that's devoid of the gospel completely. Someone who puts on the armor of light enjoys light. Right? Enjoys light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Okay. Relentless appropriation. For those of you who are first-generation believers, you may have to be patient with those of us who are second and third generation as we disciple each other back to biblical relationships, biblical relationships, and seeking to spiritually reproduce God's will in each other. Because in the end of the day, whether you're a second or third generation or whether you're a first generation, right, the mandates of this text are still the same. They're still the same. And we seek to help each other honor them together. Let's pray together.